Let's pray before we go to our study. Father God, we thank you for your glory is revealed to us through the cross of your Son, through the indwelling presence of your Spirit, even the glory that is revealed to us through your written word. And I pray that by your Spirit and the word tonight, you will lead us to understand and comprehend who you are more clearly and that our response as we look at you in all your glory and majesty is one of worship, gratitude, and adoration. Move in us tonight as we move through your word and the Psalms. I pray that you'll grant to me clarity of word and thought, but to each of us uh, clarity of mind and heart as we take these things in, apply them to our lives, and Father, uh, under the working of your Spirit, we become more sanctified and likened to your Son. In Christ we pray. Amen. One of the um, unfortunate aspects of doing studies in the evening service is that we have long breaks. And sometimes I can't necessarily control those breaks. And right in the middle of Psalm 9, as you know, we stopped back in July. And we're picking up here in September and so there's a bit of a, a lapse probably in our memories. I would bet if I were to challenge you tonight, most of you can't remember what we talked about last in Psalm, or, yeah, Psalm 9. And honestly, <laughs> I have to look at my own notes to find out what we talked about. So we're at a little bit of a disadvantage jumping into the middle of a psalm. So I've given you the note sheet that showed the previous headings. And a couple of things that I want to highlight, and I'm not going to give much of an introduction tonight because I want to go into the second half of the psalm. But one of the things that we, I hope, see in this particular psalm is David's past, present, and future view of God and how it affects his praise of God, how it affects his worship. Our study of the psalms is intended to increase our understanding of God and find a response of worship because of what we know about God. Look at, with me at Psalm, one, uh, psalm 9, beginning in verse 1. <coughs> I'll read just quickly down through verse 20. David writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my just cause. You've sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished, but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, for you O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwell in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And this is where we're going to begin tonight. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. That I may tell of all your praises. That in the gates of the daughters of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God, for the needy will not always be forgotten. 
nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. I've been titled um, this particular psalm, Grateful Praise, which really is a name that could be fixed on most any of the psalms. But I have fixed it on this particular one because all throughout this psalm there is praise. Even as it's talking about the judgment of God, there is praise. And what I particularly like, as I mentioned a moment ago, is that past, present, future look of God. As David writes this song of praise to the Lord, he has that perspective, that tense, if you will, the past, the present, and the future. And we're going to see that again this evening. But the first six verses clearly praise for past wonders. David is looking at what God has done for him. And you will notice that it builds upon his confidence and his trust in the Lord as now in verse 13, he turns his attention to the present praises. And then in verse 7 to 12, we consider David praising God for the future judgments that he was going to bring against the wicked. Tonight, we are considering the present assurances that David has in praising God. And you will notice that a good part of this second half of the psalm is a a psalm of prayer. And we're going to talk about that. There's a prayer at the beginning in verse 13 and 14 and a prayer at the end there in verse 19 and 20. But the third and final series of verses that we're looking at tonight is going to find David praising the Lord for the present assurance of God that he needed to walk through his afflictions, as noted in verse 13. And some of the subjects you will note in verse 13 to verse 20 do have a future outlook. So David isn't ignoring what God will yet do, but the context of David's prayer And praises here deal largely with his present needs and hopes. And therefore he takes hold of what will yet come. He's confident in the Lord in what will yet come for his present needs and necessities. And David was so assured of what the Lord will do in the future that his present appeals for grace bring him to praise God. And because one of the reasons that we're studying the Psalms is that we might grow in our worship of God, it is important that we learn what the psalmist is teaching us about worship. A truth that we have developed in the past, and I want us to note again tonight, is that being a good worshiper of God requires that we be a good observer of God. I noted that in our last study in July, but we're going to see it, I think, so clearly tonight. We can observe God, and I want to make a distinction here, because as we consider the past, present, future, something comes to light in David's observations of God. We can observe God from his works in the lives of others. As we look at the Old and New Testament scripture, we read about men like David or Moses or Abraham, the prophets, or the New Testament, men like Paul or men like Peter or John, and we can see God's faithfulness, right? We can see God moving in the past in the lives of those, and it gives us assurance in the present. That is being a good observer of God. But please note what David is doing here. He's relying upon present experiences with God. He's not speaking about Moses or Job. He's speaking about how God is presently working in his life. He's relying on his own experiences with God, and this is drawing him to worship the Lord. 
based on his experience with God. And from this, I would suggest that we need to observe God working in our lives in this same way. Now, for sure, we must guard our observations with the truth of Scripture because we can be prone to make assumptions about God based on what's going on presently in our lives. The Word of God establishes His character and promises that we should, would otherwise presume about Him. And when we presume about God, that's when we find ourselves in trouble. That's why false teachers lead people astray. They make presumptions about God that are not based on the authority of Scripture. But where we are guided by Scripture that is properly applied to our circumstances, we can observe God's hand working in our own lives, and this should lead us to worship God based on a knowledge from our personal experience. Take, for example, Romans chapter 8. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. There is a promise of Scripture that we can apply to our present lives, and we're going to see that this evening as we take this particular psalm or this part of the psalm apart in our study, beginning with verse 13 and 14, what I see is praise and pleas for grace. This is a very present tense thing that David is doing here. And this is where he enters into prayer yet again in this song of praise after calling for God's people to sing praises to the Lord there in verse 11 and 12 and to speak of the deeds of the Lord among other believers, David now continues in verse 13 to appeal to God in prayer for his present troubles. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion <coughs> I may rejoice in your salvation. Now in this prayer, David has two requests and he gives two reasons for those requests. But it is to be noted here that in his opening appeal, this should be the approach, if you will, the foundation of all of our appeals to the Lord. It is an appeal for the unmerited favor of God. It is an appeal for grace. Now, I'm going to put up a statement by James Boyce that I believe is very relevant and it will be helpful to understand what, he, what David is saying this is a foundational petition, Boyce writes, showing that David never approached God on the basis of any supposed goodness in himself or any achievement for which he believed he should be rewarded. Now, I think this comment is especially relevant as we consider David as the chosen man of God to be the king of Israel, anointed to be the ruler of God's people and seated there on the throne in the city of God, Zion, Jerusalem, and a man that God declared to be someone after God's own heart. God said that of David. But now we see David here in Psalm 9 suffering from an affliction, and he's in some measure of life-threatening peril. David does not find himself in dark times and presume upon God some sort of merited favor. His prayer opens with an appeal for that which David did not deserve. In other words, he's appealing for grace. David is saying, I don't deserve relief. I don't deserve to be rescued, but I appeal for it based on grace. Does that make sense? This is a foundational prayer that David is giving to us. And putting ourselves in this position, 
When trouble comes our way as Christians, we are prone to use that word, why? And the word why always has some merit attached to it. Why, Lord, are you allowing me to face this trouble? Why am I experiencing all this grief? Why are other believers coasting along so wonderfully, but I have to face this particular trial? And whenever we use that word why, there's always attached with it some personal merit. Now, we're not going to verbalize that, but is it not true that we have felt that? The moment we are facing some insurmountable trial or some darkness, we're thinking to ourselves, but Lord, haven't I been a devoted servant? Haven't I been committed to the ministry or to the church? And haven't I been fairly obedient? I'm a fairly moral individual. I'm not like the immoral people of the world. And the question, why, Lord, almost suggests or has some connotation of human merit as if to suggest that surely I don't deserve this trouble in my life. Psalms of praise like this one teach us that no matter our circumstance, no matter our appeal to God in prayer, grace is what we rest upon. It has to be the foundation of our appeals to the Lord. Even troubles, if you will think of it in this light, even troubles that we face in life are permitted by God as something you do not deserve because he promises to work out some good through that trial. Let's just use Romans 5 as an example because all of you know this text. So let's take that Romans 5 uh, passage and use it as an example here to what is meant by this, this gracious appeal, this appeal for grace. In Romans chapter 5, and if you will look at these verses with me, verse 3, 4, and 5, Paul says, I re rejoice, I exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, what David is pointing out here is that in this tribulation that God permits us to walk through, he's doing some spiritual work on our lives that we do not deserve. And we see that because if you back up to verse 2, the Apostle Paul names this as our foundation. Look at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we what? Stand. Grace is the foundation here. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And therefore, based on that grace that we stand upon in our salvation, God graciously permits us to enter into these tribulations knowing that we need perseverance. We don't deserve it, but he's going to teach it to us. And having gained that perseverance, we're going to obtain a proven character that we did not have before. And with that proven character comes this hope. And notice none of this is stuff that we deserve. But in verse 5, it's because of the love of God that has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us as a gift, mind you. It's because of God's love. So even the trouble, the afflictions, the trials, are things we do not deserve to enter into with our God who has been given to us in his indwelling spirit. And he's going to take us through those trials and do this gracious work that we do not deserve. 
Now, with this, with this truth before us, if we should find ourselves in difficult times and we wondered what good might be in this, this trouble that we're in and we cry out to the Lord, might we suggest that the very first prayer out of our lips is this, be gracious to me, O Lord. I need grace because I don't deserve you working in my life. It's grace that will build this foundation of prayer. David then, going back to Psalm 9, two requests are made of God. Now, David is not specific with the particular trouble that he faces, but a couple of things seem apparent. There are enemies that hate him, that are afflicting him in some way, causing him no small measure of suffering. And the second request has to do with David being close to the threshold of death. And I guess he does not identify that, but he feels some peril or some threat of death itself. Now, the second peril is certainly not uncommon for David. As we read of his life, this man is often on the run and often in fear of his life. What specific circumstance is meant here, we are not certain of. Yet both with the affliction and the fear of death, David appeals for God's grace, his unmerited favor, to bring him relief and to rescue him. And this brings us to two reasons that are given for those requests. Now, the first is rather obvious. It has just been mentioned in the David hopes that God will deliver him from these troubles. God will rescue him. Now, I don't want to breeze by this too quickly because we need to state the obvious here. This shows us that we are in good company to lay our troubles before the Lord in prayer before his throne of grace. Now, it is quite possible that we pray more for our temporal and physical troubles than our spiritual needs. And I think it's the better part of wisdom to not neglect the sometimes weightier spiritual needs that we do have. At the same time, we should observe that David very often in the Psalms is pleading for God's grace for some temporal or physical trial that he is going through and he wants relief from, as he is here in Psalm 9. And we see this in other passages in our Philippians study. Remember, Paul was passionately appealing to the Lord in chapter 2 for the life of Epaphroditus. He was praying for a sick man. We do that often in our evening services. Now, it's probably true that we pray so much for the temporal that we may neglect the spiritual. But we also don't want to treat praying for the temporal and the physical as an unnecessary matter or as something that is a waste of God's time or even think that such a prayer is more worldly or less spiritual. It is not. Prayer is a humble appeal for grace and an expression of our full dependence on the mercies of God to provide what is needed both in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Neither should be neglected. And both appeals, both appeals honor God because we're coming to him for grace. Now the second reason that David appeals in prayer for grace is that he was concerned for the testimony of the Lord. And you see that in verse 14. He's concerned for the reputation of the Lord. David wants the Lord to answer his prayers so that he can boast of the Lord's power and the Lord's mercy 
to the citizens of the city as we read about there in verse 14. In addition, notice at the end of verse 14, David longs for the joy that God's rescuing grace will bring to him, that I may rejoice in your salvation. And this is where I want us to come again to that idea of being a good observer of God. It teaches us to observe and watch God work when we pray for help. We're not simply to pray and move on, forgetting that which we've asked God help for. This is something that we may be guilty of, especially when we come to an evening service like this and we pray for one another or somebody puts out a prayer request. Tonight we'll pray for those prayer requests. Do we continue to remember those things? Do we continue to watch God work in those prayers? Because we know that God isn't necessarily going to move tonight to answer that prayer he may answer tomorrow he may answer next week or next year or 10 years from now perhaps God will allow the trial to remain and if we observe God working in allowing that trial to remain are we observing how God is causing his good to be worked out there as Romans 8 promises as Romans 5 has declared Are we actually observing God perform a spiritual work as we've prayed for that thing, that trial, that affliction, and God has seen fit to not remove it from our lives? But we're working through that trial, and God has promised to work all good out of this thing. And perseverance and proven character coming to light. Do we see, do we observe God working in that? On the other hand, we may see God powerfully remove the trial and rescue. And and relieve the suffering. As we carefully observe this process from prayer to answer, we're ready, we're poised to rejoice in the salvation that the Lord brings here. We're ready to praise him and speak to others about what the Lord has done. David saw God's answer to prayer as an opportunity to boast of his grace. Is that how we treat these things? Is this the, the reflection of our worship I think it's important to learn these kinds of truths from the Psalms because I do believe we can, prone to, we can be prone to either pray and forget and move on or we can be prone to face our troubles alone and privately, keeping all of these things to ourselves. And when the answer does come, we tend to keep hidden the praises and rejoicing that could have been made public for the glory of Christ. David is not manipulating the Lord here to get what he wants in prayer. In other words, there's not a negotiation on his part that if God gives him what he wants, he's going to do some good advertising for the Lord. Not at all. David is a genuine and faithful worshiper of the Lord. In fact, he's the master biblical worshiper, isn't he? He's the great instructor of what worship looks like. Praise songs are one of his very, very strong contributions to God's word. Verse 14, what it's doing is exposing the heart of David to make the praises of God a public display of his glory and his majesty. Keeping these matters private is not part of his worshiping profile. David wanted others to know of God's grace, especially God's people, signified by the daughters, the gates of Zion, which is a a metaphor for God's people here. David wanted others to join in with him in praising God. Praise is meant, it is meant to be a corporate response of worship. Note that again from verse 11. 
David intends this to be a corporate response of worship. A common message throughout the Psalms, throughout the Psalms, is declared in Psalm 147 and verse 1. And I want to give this to you for your meditation and consideration tonight. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. I don't think for one moment we should look at the music part of our service as something that just gets us by until we get to the real meaty stuff here in the study of his word. If we understand this issue of worship, that as we gather our voices together, we are corporately recognizing the glory and the majesty of God and we're praising, we're worshiping him together. I say this because we can be prone to be too private. And there are some things that must be kept private in our prayer life. I do understand that. But please observe that David is ready to expose his own pleas and petitions before the Lord, letting everybody know, I'm a humble, needy man. I'm weak, and I need the Lord's strength. I'm suffering, I'm afflicted. I'm on the verge of death. Lord, rescue me. And as you do bring your grace upon me in these afflictions, I'm going to put you on glorious display. That's why David is the guy that went dancing into the city and so humiliated himself to his wife that she was ashamed of him. He was dancing around, probably exposed his legs or something. I don't know. But David was not afraid to show his praise and worship to God. Debbie and I just watched this little video. We had lunch with the, the preacher that spoke this morning. And he was showing the typical African wedding. And after the wedding, they gather around for these receptions. As they're moving, the, the whole throng of people are moving into the reception. They're bouncing, and they're moving kind of in a, in a rhythm. I'm not doing that very well because I don't have that musical move. But if you could picture Debbie and I up here, we'd be swaying and bopping into the reception hall. And everybody is doing it together. Not that that's what worship looks like. But David envisions worshiping God and praising God to be something that is corporately done. Our voices, our hearts are joined together. And when God answers a prayer, we have been observing God, watching how he's working. And we come to a place like this tonight, and we're prepared to boast of God. This is what God has done. We prayed about this a month ago. Let me tell you what God has done. The suffering has remained. But this is how God has brought me through spiritually this journey. Or God has relieved this affliction. Do you see what David is saying? I am prepared to boast on the Lord. And this is the second of the reasons that he appeals to God for grace. So he can put his grace on display. And this brings us to our second part tonight. Praise in expectation of judgment. In expectation of judgment. Verse 15 through verse 18. This section is largely about God's judgment of wicked men. Yet in the midst of these verses, please observe that David is praising God for his vengeance, his vindication of the needy and afflicted, and for his perfect justice displayed in his judgment of the wicked. Now this may seem odd to some, because praise is generally associated with rejoicing and happy acknowledgments of God's glorious attributes. And most certainly, the unbeliever is going to struggle with the idea of praising God 
for his present and his coming judgment because the thought of the destruction of human life seems objectionable to most humans. Yet throughout the Psalms, God is praised for his judging of the wicked and the people of God are seen rejoicing in that truth. Rejoicing in God as a judge. I think you and I understand that the coming judgment brings to light the glorious attributes of God's holiness of character and his perfect justice. But at the same time, the end of the story of the judgment of God is the destruction of wicked mankind. It is the confidence that God will seek his final vengeance. It is the understanding of an eternal hell for all who do not belong to God, who choose to reject God and to reject his word, his ways, and his gospel. For a great many people, this is simply an offensive view of God. And for many religious people, and I say religious, not Christian, but religious people, they attempt to rewrite the character of God by removing the doctrines of hell and divine justice. An example, Ralph Bell in that book a few years ago, Love Wins. His view of God is to remove the whole judgment, the whole issue of divine judgment and justice, remove hell and end up with a much more happy kind of a God, a jolly God. This is not so with David. He praises for both the present judgments of God and for the final judgment of God when unbelieving mankind is going to be consigned forever to Sheol or hell. Now, just follow along with me. Beginning in verse 15, David contrasts the salvation that he prays for over and against the destruction that the evil nations will experience. The praise here in verse 15 is found in that the wicked have dug pits and set snares to cause harm to God's people, but their devices have caught themselves. They've been trapped in their own devices. And this is a display of God's justice to catch the wicked in their own snares. I'm on the verge of sneezing, so I'm trying to stop it. A good example of this comes from the sermon, <laughs> the sermon on the Mount. And I know Christian has been taking the young people through that. But in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, this is what it says. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> For in the way you judge you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. That is God's system of justice. And you take that and you lay that over Psalm 9, that's exactly what David is saying. Mankind and their wickedness have set snares and traps for God's people, but they're caught in their own snares. This is the hand of God working, bringing a present judgment against some of the wicked in this world, being caught in their own evil devices. Such a warning is a caution to God's people to be careful in our dealings with others, in that our unfair measure towards others may be used by God to deal out his justice to us. But the enemies of God are no exception here. Where evil is committed against his family, God intends to bring similar judgments on them. And then we move to verse 16, which follows this truth. By declaring that God makes himself known 
by executing judgment against the wicked. The Lord has made himself known, it says. He's executed judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. In other words, God does not act in secret when he brings about his judgment. He's not trying to hide it. When the wicked are snared, it is evidence of his hands at work executing judgment against evil. Please note here, God is not ashamed of his justice, nor should we be ashamed of his justice. God puts his judgment on display. And what man is going to stand up to God and say, that is inappropriate? Man does that, but he has no right to stand before holy God and say, that's a terrible thing. Your God, he does this? How do you explain that? Clearly, God is not ashamed of his judgments, nor should the people of God. And verse 16 then ends with two kind of untranslated words, higayon and selah. Now, selah is one we're familiar with because it's that kind of musical pause that we see throughout the, the Psalms. But this first word, higayon, indicates one who is paused to give meditation. This is a serious thing, David is saying. This is a majestic truth. God is known by his judgments. God is just. And there's this pause. Meditate. Consider well who God is. See how he moves and he works. This is our God. This is his character. God puts himself on display when he brings judgment against the wicked. Verse 17 continues. After this thoughtful pause, by focusing the attention on what is to be expected from God's judgment and on whom it is to be expected. First, David praises God that the wicked will return to Sheol. And this reference is expected from God's judgment. Sheol in the Hebrew is a proper name. That's why the capital S there. But it is used both for the grave that both the wicked and the righteous go to, and it is used to identify the eternal end of just the wicked. And the text demands that of us. We have to look at the text to determine which of the two is meant. Clearly here, in this verse, we can see what is meant. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. The context of David's... uh, identification of this Sheol is something that is consigned for the wicked. Well, that can't refer to just the grave or being buried in the ground because both the righteous and the wicked end up in that end. So the use of Sheol here is a reference to the fiery hell of God's judgment that is determined for the wicked and the wicked alone. Adding to this, notice the second half of that verse. David adds a puzzling addition to the wicked at the end of this verse by saying that along with the wicked, those who merely forget God are destined for this same hell. In other words, the decent and honest among men who simply have no interest in the Lord God are going to be consigned to the same eternal abode as the most wicked of men. This is what Charles Spurgeon says of this verse, listen carefully to what he's saying. How solemn is the 17th verse, especially in its warning to forgetters of God. The moral who are not devout, the honest who are not prayerful, the benevolent who are not believing, the amiable who are not converted, 
These must all have their portion with the openly wicked in the hell which is prepared for the devil and his angels. He goes on to write, Forgetfulness seems a small sin, but it brings eternal wrath upon the man who lives and dies in it. In other words, don't ignore God. You don't dismiss God. You don't treat God as if he's irrelevant. Indifference will consign people to the same end as the most wicked. This is what Spurgeon is saying because this is what verse 17 is saying. Sheol is the end of God's judgment for the wicked and for those that just have no use for God. They're indifferent towards him and they forget God. Verse 18 then brings to a close this discussion on David's description of God's judgment. This verse introduces something of why such a discussion is worthy of our praises. God will bring his justices so that we know that the needy and the afflicted will not be forgotten in their misery and it gives them a hope to fix their spiritual gain on, gaze on. Consider certain words that are characteristic of our, our, our Christian journey, our Christian experience. Words like faithfulness, devotion, perseverance, steadfastness, among many others. These are expressions that define the Christian journey, right? What all of these have in common is that they are challenged by a common enemy. Those who oppose God and his people. We're called by Christ to be faithful to him and his word against the pressures that would cause us to be unfaithful. We're to be devoted to Christ against the pressure to defect, to persevere against the pressure to give up, to be steadfast against the pressure towards indifference. The very fact that our Christian experience in this world is one to that is to exhibit faithfulness, devotion, perseverance, and these kinds of things is because there's that which is opposing us. Jesus warned that the Christian life would find us hated and opposed by the world just as they hated and opposed him. And one of the great incentives that you and I have to continue to be faithful, to continue in devotion, to persevere when evil threatens our devotion to Christ is that whether in this life or the next, God is going to answer man's evil with his perfect justice. And so we can praise God for the coming judgment because, because it gives us a purpose to continue to press on. It's that which encourages us to be devoted and faithful. God does not forget the needy. There is an end to the affliction of sinful man. We have hope because God's eternal judgment is coming. His justice will win in the end, and all of the world's wicked offenses will face his vengeance. Praising God for the dreadfulness of his day of judgment may seem offensive to the world, but it gives to the Christian hope. It gives us a target. It exhorts us and encourages us to be faithful and to persevere. And this brings us to verse 19 and 20. A praise and petition for fear. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This Old Testament hymn ends with another prayer by David, and this time a petition calling for the Lord to arise and bring about his judgment against the nation. 
David longs for the day when the fear of God will be upon men and they will know that they are mere men and no match for the justice of God's wrath. And while this is a petition in prayer, it is part of David's song of praise to God for the justice that he anticipates from God. It's a note of praise because it encourages the church to keep its eyes fixed on the day of the Lord when the believer is going to be vindicated and unrighteousness will feel the dreadful presence of Jesus Christ. There is one thing that is so common among those who torment the church and who despise the word of God and who refuse to repent before the Lord. They are all almost always arrogant and stand in proud defiance against the sovereign ruler of this universe. And when God brings his judgment to bear upon the sins of mankind, they will tremble in fear and will know their humble and feeble limitations before God. They will know they are but mere men. And on that day, God says men's hearts will fail them from fear. This is what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. From fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Men's hearts will fail them from fear and the expectation of what is to come. This week, the news network has been warning of the great power and the force of Hurricane Florence. The wind, the rain, the storm surge overpower man's best efforts to control it. And so you know that the, the news has been, and the, the, the uh, police and the emergency services have been warning people to do what? Flee, get away, don't stay put, because they can't control the power of the storm. But imagine what it's going to be like when the heavens are violently shaken by the hand of God and his son returns to execute his final judgment. Humanity is going to be overcome with fear. They're going to realize they are no match for the power of Christ, that they are mere men. And this dreadful time in human history is the praise of the church. God will never forget his own. He has given to us the great hope that whether in this life or the next, our afflictions will be done away with and all threat and danger against the people of God will come to a fiery but peaceful and eternal conclusion. God's judgment is worthy of our praise. That's what David is saying. God's judgment is worthy of our praise. It gives us hope. It reminds us God does not forget his people in their affliction. Father, this is truly a meaty psalm. And David has so much to teach us about praise and worship, about observing how you work in the daily experiences of our life. And I do pray that as we study these kinds of psalms, you would make us good observers of your hand working in our lives. We observe your hand working in the pages of Scripture. Help us to be good students of your hand working in our lives and apply the truths of scripture your theology of who you are to how you work in our lives and the end result is that we praise you more we worship you more we pray to that end tonight in christ amen